usually the first question I ask them is how much money are you making per year? And are you having to turn away business? And they're like, well, I'm just not bigsy enough. I don't have enough leads coming in. I was like, well, then scaling is not your problem. Like you're just going to scale a problem is what you're going to scale. You don't have money coming in. It's no secret that the coronavirus is affecting all of us as individuals, but the effect it's having on business, especially small business is unprecedented. We need a game plan and fast. If we're going to survive this, we need resources and we need each other. We can't do it alone. I'm Jesse Torres, and this is Hack My Business. With my background in economic and workforce development, disaster preparedness, and general business strategy, I know I can help you navigate this scary time in your business and beyond. It's all about resiliency. I'll have the most current solutions and best practices available so we can ensure your business not only survives this crisis, but thrives. We'll also be keeping you informed about the latest resources for small business so that you don't miss a thing. Co-hosting with me will be my colleague, Sid Farakura. We'll have invited experts to help us navigate through the current noisy landscape of resources and programs that are being made available today and who will be able to prepare us for tomorrow. Let's do this together. I'm Jesse Torres, and this is Hack My Business. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hack My Business. This is Jesse Torres host of Hack My Business. Really excited to be coming back to the show and welcoming a really special guest today, Tony Watley, best-selling author, uh, creator, uh, podcaster, uh, and startup entrepreneur. He's probably best known as the co-founder of LS1 Tech, an online automotive community with a membership of over 300,000 that sold successfully for millions. Uh, he's also a best-selling author, and he's going to be talking about his new book about scaling companies. And I'm just really excited to have him on because he also has experience in the field that I do work in of procurements. And it's really rare to find someone with that that kind of varied background who loves cars, uh, you know, fast, fast speed cars, and also has the ability to talk about state contracting and government contracting, which is really unusual. So Tony, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Hey, Jesse, thanks for having me on. I can't wait to get to know your audience and hopefully have some good takeaways for them. Absolutely. Well, why don't we just talk a little bit about your background and tell us about your journey? I would say I grew up ordinary. I would say lower middle class. My parents were both two blue collar, hardworking parents. And my mom spent over 30 years working in this public school cafeteria system. And my dad, after he got out of the U.S. Marines, he's a Vietnam veteran. He worked in the chemical refineries here in the Houston area. So I got to see the values of two hard, hardworking parents with really high discipline expectations. And, and my mom was the, the school disciplinarian and my dad was the Marine sergeant disciplinarian and other, other factors. And you know, when we grew up, we didn't have a lot of money. And obviously, my we lived in flip houses, basically. We would buy the crappiest house in the neighborhood, and we would just refurb it over the next five to 10 years while we lived in it. And then we'd build a little bit, you know, get another little bit bigger home and just kind of grow into that. And that's what we just did. And, you know, over the course of that, I learned to appreciate what I had. And honestly, we would start out with the, the worst houses. But by the time we were ready to sell those houses, they were always the nicest house and the most manicured houses because my mom's got a green thumb and loves gardening and my dad and I got really handy at painting and just repairing things. So, you know, so it was a little bit of a background under that. And people ask you if we were a kid entrepreneur. And to me, I was, I just did things to make money. I, I mowed yards and I walked dogs. I washed cars. I did anything like raked leaves. I mean, I didn't think that was entrepreneurship. That was just a way to make you know, money for video games or BMX bikes or skateboards. So, you know, I, I think I took that hustle into my, my adulthood and, 
you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college on both sides. So my mom is Japanese immigrant and, you know, my dad and no one had ever gone to college in both sides of the family, even including extended family. So I decided that I wanted to go pursue the six-figure American dream. And the best way I could do that was get an engineering degree because they always tell you, you can be a, a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And I was like, well, I don't want to be a doctor. And I don't really want to be a lawyer. So I guess I like cars. So maybe engineering is something I should do. And that's what I did. And I put myself through school and I worked construction just like my dad. And I'd go to school at night and I would wait tables on the weekends. And it took me seven years to get that bachelor's degree. And I'll tell you that when I got out, I was getting home at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And I felt bored because after going through that hustle and grind for seven years, to me, a full-time 40-hour work week just seemed like a part-time job. And and I could have said, well, you know, I'm going to go spend the time in the bars and just do a bunch of stupid things that young men do, or I can actually just go back to work. And I actually went back to the restaurant that I formerly worked at and picked up shifts every night. And I did that for a year and a half. And you know, here was a guy with an engineering degree working a salary job, but also waiting tables. And people are always like, why do you do this? Why? It's because I'm not where I want to be. And this is just mm-hmm. another way for me to get there. So I was always willing to do the things that most people wouldn't and not worry about what other people said about those kind of things. You know, your, your story, it really resonates with me because we have some some commonalities. You know, same thing. Uh, my family, um, uh, they all came from Mexico, first generation. You know, one, one of the first, besides my cousins, to go to college for the first time, you know, for my parents, that was a, that in itself was a, a dream, right? My mom worked at uh, Social Security Administration for many years. My dad was a barber, became a contractor. So I don't know if you, you'll probably uh, resonate with this, but many a summer I spent either sweeping hair or on a roof somewhere laying down tar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny because now that I'm an entrepreneur myself, you know, I have this management consulting firm. We focus on economic development, small business programs. And I, I think about, okay, where did I first get that love and entrepreneurship? And a lot of it is, you know, watching my parents, you know, and how they hustled and did certain things. And I felt the same way. We went to, uh, my wife and I, we went to UCLA. Everybody at that time thought we were going to become doctors. ER had just come out right. Everybody thinks you're going to go this certain path. And then next thing you know, you're realizing, oh, this is not what I want to do. Something isn't quite right, right? I'm just curious if you had also, you know, people around you, were they starting ventures? Did you have friends doing things? Like what what really kind of led you down that path? Who inspired you? No, absolutely not. I never thought I would be a business owner or a multimillionaire at all because it just didn't seem like in my reality, I didn't have anybody that was successful in my family. And, and honestly, some of the family members would talk down to you like, you know, like, I don't know what it's just weird cultural type things where they would think that you're never going to be as successful as them. And, you know, who do you think you are and that kind of stuff like that. And and for me, I always thought that being a business owner required you to be already rich or have some kind of inheritance or a, a family legacy business, because the only perspective I had a business at that age was growing up in a small town with about 15,000 population and the business owners were all on main street and they had a brick and mortar and it had their last name. And then what they did underneath that on a sign. So I, I remember thinking, well, if I'm going to be a business owner, I had to like buy a building and I had to buy a sign. I had to hire yeah. people. It's like, there's no way I'm going to be able to afford that. And that's just really the thought I, I had. And so like most of middle-class America, we're taught to go get an education, go get an air quotes, steady job, and just work and just make money and trade units of time for units of dollars. And that's the way I believed. Mm-hmm. And if you needed more dollars, you traded more units of time or you got bigger units of dollars per time or you got a, picked up overtime or you picked up extra shifts or you got a second job or a third job. And that's just how we thought. Like if you needed to make money, it was either sell some things that you had or go work more. And I didn't have that entrepreneurial mind. I knew that I wanted to do more, but I guess with the corporate job, for me, what it was was being told like to wait your turn. So here I'm a young engineer, 
junior project manager. And I knew that I could, I was capable. I've always been a high achiever. I was a straight A student in public schools mm-hmm. and I did pretty well. And, and I just knew that I could do more, but I was got always told like, you're too young for this, wait your turn. You know, the, you got to be in this role for five more years before you can have that position or that, you know, you get the little bit bigger cubicle. Let's not be you know, kidding ourselves. Right. And sometimes the title that was more valuable than the paycheck raise. Right. And we see that in corporate mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And so I just got tired of told, being told to wait my turn and not getting the authority or responsibilities that I really craved because I like to push myself. So I started to think about how can I create businesses on the side that gives me an outlet. I can be creative. And I was teaching myself how to code and make websites. I was teaching myself photography. I was teaching myself graphic design with Photoshop. I'm just reading books because back then this was this was the really the late, late, late nineties and the internet. I was only on the internet since 96 and this was around 97, 98. I started reading books. Actually the book that's still on that shelf was, and people like, what is the book that changed your life? And I was like, well, it was, it's kind of a boring book. And they're like, what was it? It was like how to code HTML to build web pages. It was like, it's from 1996. Right. You know, I just bought this book and I said, Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of a creative person. I like art. I'm just going to figure out how to put it on a screen. And I just taught yeah. myself how to do that. And that led to, oh, you can actually make money at doing this. And that was actually one of my first side hustles is building these one to three page websites, coding HTML and notepad and putting on some server, you know, learning how to FTP and all this other stuff. Totally. And, and then that just kind of grew. And soon enough, I started LS1 Tech with a friend and I just wanted to build a, a website so that my car friends around the country could hang out on the internet and talk about cars. And what it was, it was a General Motors performance community. So Corvettes, Camaros, Firebirds, a Cadillac performance series. I just wanted a cool place to hang out. And, and funny thing is I was thinking really small, even when I started the thing, it's like, you know what? I had this brand new car that I bought myself when I graduated college. It was a Pontiac Trans Am. And my partner had a Camaro SS and it was new also. And he was in Chicago and it, we, our payments were $500 a month for that car. So it's like, man, if we could make $500 a month, this would be like having a free car. I could just build this web page and actually have like a free car. That'd be so cool. And man, within 10 months into that business, we were making about $10,000 profit per month. And then I was like, wow, wow uh, this, Great. this is like a business. This is not a hobby. Back then, because, you know, it's, it, I think we have very similar kind of um, timeline. You know, one of my first um, jobs ever was working for America Online back in the early 2000s. AOL. That initial yeah, right. Were you doing all the HTML yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm trying to remember back then, you know, there really wasn't the, the teams of HTML experts on hand. How much of that was just you guys taking your passion and then molding a business around it? And how much of the work that you guys had to do on your own versus outsourcing or bringing somebody in? So I was very savvy on the technical stuff. So I could handle the servers and uploading software and looking at intermediate security measures and I could HTML and I could create the logos. And I was really good at visual and creating the layout to make the make an aesthetic. My partner was a technical recruiter. So he would like to be mm-hmm. in on the phone, which was perfect for doing lead gen and getting us some advertising dollars and getting some sponsors for the website and encouraging people to join and reaching out to industry contacts and telling them about this cool new website that they needed to be a part of. And he loved to talk on the phone. I did not, I still don't like talking on the phone. It's kind of strange as that sounds, but that, that we were very complimentary in that regard. I was the visionary. I was the aesthetic guy that can see everything. And he was the one that would just go do the, the, the stuff I didn't like to do. And, you know, so yeah, exactly what you're saying. Just, I had to do everything until I started to realize that I need to create processes and systems to fire myself. I literally thought about this because I had a very hmm. demanding career. I was working offshore oil and gas here in Houston, 
And sometimes I'd be gone for 28 days in a row and sometimes no internet. I'd be in Africa or England or France or floating on a boat in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And so I had to be able to create businesses that I didn't have to be there for. And so mm-hmm. initially I would do things and I would just be like, Hey, I'm gonna be gone for two or three weeks. Like, you know, you got this. And, and we put moderators in charge to kind of manage it. But if things were to go on a technical downturn, then I had to be there. So I said, you know what, we need to get a part-time person that we can 1099 and just pay them as a consultant. And obviously when I, at that time, there's probably 10,000 members. It was really small at that point. And I just said, Hey, is anybody here do it? And like, probably had like a dozen people like, Hey, that's what I do. And so we just picked a mm-hmm. car guy that enjoyed doing that. And initially he did it for free. He said, man, I just want to be a part of this. This is cool. And he was doing such a good job after the first year. We're like, dude, can we pay you something like maybe a thousand a month, 2000 a month is something. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. So we just paid him like 2000 a month. And he just had to randomly check in to make sure the server logs were doing good. And it wasn't slowing down. And the, the server capacity was eight below 80% because we we're always focused on making sure the customers had a great experience and we didn't like how mm-hmm. our competitors out there would let the server start lagging and be really dreary yeah. and like miserable to use. And then, then they would upgrade. We always just stayed ahead of that because we knew that although these people were visiting our website for free, they were still customers. And without them, we didn't have the leverage to attract more sponsors or raise our ad rates. Yeah. You know, I used to, you know, what I, in my professional background, I've had the opportunity to advise a lot of small business owners, I used to oversee a federal program for small businesses. I was the state small business advocate for California for Governor Brown. And I always remember, you know, saying to people, you want to make your first hire when when you feel ultra stretched, when you're at that breaking point, because, you know, often coming to the place of maximizing profits, right, revenue, your associated early stage. Now that I've had my own business, right, and and we're starting a new venture, my, my co-host Sid and I, and I want to definitely talk with you about it, get your, get your thoughts. But, you know, is that true anymore? Or do you think it's better to kind of immediately hire someone who, if you have a good sense of you're going to need a certain skill set or just your time is stretched? I mean, you're working in another gig at the same time. Like, when is that right moment to make that first hire, in your opinion? You now, we were talking about Clubhouse before we fired up this, this interview. And one of the number one questions I see in those entrepreneur advice rooms is, how do I scale my business? They don't even know what that means. I mean, usually the first question I ask them is how much money are you making per year? And are you having to turn away business? And they're like, well, I'm just not bigsy enough. I don't have enough leads coming in. I was like, well, then scaling is not your problem. Like you're just going to scale a problem is what you're going to scale. You don't have money coming in. Like, like you got to think, I love the reaction side of this thing. So we can forecast our business obviously and say, Hey, we're on you know, month three of this year. And it's looking like this quarter is going to be this. And it's had this trend line. And we know that you know, in six months, it's going to be this. And we can extrapolate and, and forecast and try to be ahead of that. But honestly, for small business owners, let's say they 10, 10 or less employees, it's reactionary. It's like, Hey, grow until something breaks or there's just something that you're degrading in quality and you're not, you know, not hitting your deliverable targets and you're not delivering what you, or you're, you're not doing what you say you're going to do. And that's when we start to scale on those things. Well, maybe we can systemize this and make some creative processes to reduce the burden on training or in onboarding new employees, or maybe we can automate some kind of things to make sure the thing is, because a lot of times people get into this, especially entrepreneurs, we follow that whole silver bullet and shiny object syndrome. And we go, Oh, I need to automate this. And I need a funnel. I don't know what a funnel is, but everybody tells me I need a funnel. And, and we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to have some running ads over here. We need some Google stuff. We need SEO. And they don't even know what all this stuff is, but they're, they're getting all these sources of information from too many things, listening to podcasts, hanging out in clubhouse, listening to audiobooks, watching YouTube. And they think that that's the reason their business isn't doing well, but it's usually just little fine tweaks in the fundamentals that they're missing. 
Yeah, it's funny, man, because it's, so we're my, my co-host Sid and I, we're starting a new venture called Small Business Front, really doing content creation, community building for very small businesses under 20 employees, sole proprietors. And I started my own business a few years back and it's doing it's doing pretty good. But it's so interesting starting a kind of new media internet based company and flashing forward from my time at AOL where there's so almost too many resources, almost too many people that can try to advise you on, you know, what to do. And I'm wondering, do you feel the same way that it's almost like finding that trusted resource has now become exponentially harder just because there are so many voices that now have platforms in order to kind of say what they want? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people, especially in the personal development and the business coaching and the life coaching, things like now, because it's, it's, let's face it, we just went through 2020 and there was a lot of downturn and a lot of corporate roles that just got rolled out of the, the door and, and people I get it, I get it. We're trying to find employment, but a lot of people have the heart that want to coach and that's great because it means they're an empath and they genuinely like to help people. That's great. I love that. But have they achieved any success in the things they're teaching at? That's the other question. Like I, I get that you want to help, but go, go do something and demonstrate that you've achieved some level of success into that and then teach that. Don't skip that success part or the results part. And I think too many people nowadays are just skipping that part because they go, hey, I see Tony making videos and I can create an online course too. And, and I can do some Facebook ads too. And I can get the same results. But I don't know, that just seems to be, it's a, it's a lack of integrity. So, you know, if you're out there mm -hmm. looking for coaches and you're looking for the mentors, always do your due diligence, go Google them. You'll find if they, do they exist or they do not, do they not exist? I mean, they're, Literally, there are ways to buy your way into into proximity and to levels that you shouldn't have access to, but you do. And, and the unknowing customers aren't aware of these kind of tactics, right? So, for example, you know, we're we're author, and you can be a number one bestseller on Amazon by putting your book in like the I don't know the crazy socks category or just something weird like that, right? And and yeah. sell one copy and like, oh, it's number one because nobody's got a book in that, but. There's, a, there's ways to do that and there's ethical ways of doing that. And even the New York Times bestseller right. list, like people think like, oh my God, they're, they're a New York Times bestselling author. And they don't realize that you can buy your way on that list for about $150,000 if you know the right people. And it's not even based on sales or it's not even based on popularity. People don't even understand that New York Times bestseller list is very editorial. They just pick the things that they want on that list. And sometimes the most selling volume books won't even make in the top 100 of those kind of lists. So there's a lot of politics in the background that we don't understand. And as a consumer, you just need to be aware of this kind of stuff and start to realize like, okay, that's cool. The titles are cool, but what have you done? Like, do you have tangible proof mm -hmm. of what you've accomplished? And do you have references? Because is there past and current clients that I could have a conversation with before I hire you? And if they're not willing to give you that information, that should be a red flag for you. Speaking of, of New York Times bestselling books, Tony, I know you've been working on a new book yourself, focusing on on startups. Can you tell us a little, some information about what your book is all about? Yeah, it's actually not a new book. It came out in May of 2018, and that was my very first book. And for me, it was I really had to take the information in my head and put it into a book. And, and the funny thing is I started admitting in recent months is that it was actually kind of a cowardly play because I didn't like the recording voice. I didn't like being on stage. I had stage fright. I didn't like being on camera. And I figured that would be the easiest way for me to take my knowledge and experience and get it to potentially reach people. And I wrote the book Side Hustle Millionaire, and it took me about five months of writing this book, and I was marketing it the entire time and sold over a thousand copies in the first week, and it became number one in the small business category on Amazon. 
So all of the personal development books on Amazon would hit number 11. I was hoping to get it in the top 10, but it made number 11. And that's great for a self-published beginner author that's never done any of that before. And really just a testament of the marketing and the community that I've built to support that project along the way. I'm fascinated. How did you find the time? You know, I, I do this uh, daily journal and at the top of every journal it says, write like hell as a reminder to myself to try to find time to do that. How did you, how the heck did you do that? given everything you have going on, all your ventures and, and just, just your life. I've always been very disciplined in making sure that I prioritize the things that could actually move the needle. And I think a lot of times people look at tasks and they only do it as, a, as an X, Y, like two type scenario. They look at the urgency versus importance and they try to categorize each task as that. Well, to me, a book has a third axis. Anytime we're building a project like a podcast or a book or personal brand, you should introduce a three-dimensional way of looking at your priorities, which is urgency, importance, and also significance. And what most people don't understand is the significance value. If you write a book, it could potentially springboard your career and change the entire trajectory of the things that you want to create. If you establish you as an authority in your niche, or maybe it gets you invited on shows or television or things like that that could really greatly impact your business. So most people think, well, a book is not important and it's not urgent, so I can kind of put it off and do it when I have time to do that. But you have to weigh the significant value of this project sometimes and understand that now it creates a higher priority category for such a project. And I did it. I just I just guarded the time. And so what I do is I, I live day to day on a Gmail calendar, a very simple thing that we all carry on our mm. phone. And I decided that I needed to guard the time. So I like to write and one, one and a half hour blocks. That's kind of like my creative capacity. And I know that. So I would just do it in the morning because I'm a morning person. I like to be really mentally creative between 6 a.m. till noon. That's one of my best part of the day is for that kind of work. And so I just guard that time. And anytime there was a potential distraction, I would just weigh the two different things. Like what is the distraction and what is the book and which one is more priority? And if mm. the book was more priority, I would always do that. So I said no to a lot of things and I said yes to a lot of the things I should be focused on. And that was the book. And I knew the gravity of that book, the potential of it. Right. And, and I, when I, when I decided to start writing, it's like, I'm going to go write a number one bestseller and people laugh. They're like, Oh man, less than 1% of books ever hit number one. Like, who do you think you're going to be able to get a number one? It's like, well, yeah, because I'm an engineer and hmm. I, I can think about this. I'm a project manager by career. So I want to know what my deliverables are. I want to know the level of quality. I want to know the timeline. I want to know the budget. I want to know the the plan to get it to that achievement. And so why wouldn't I go hire some people or have some conversations with people who have achieved what I actually want to do and see what was it that you did to achieve this? Or is there certain tips or tricks or things I could pay you for that advice to how to, how to market the book and how to do this? And so I, I gathered all this information while I was writing it and I just marketed it the exact same process because it's not really random when you have follow a process of what people have done. And I just still didn't know it was going to happen. And actually in, in the chapter of my book, I actually signed it off. I put a quote in there that's one of my favorite quotes. It says, fear and confidence are both imaginary. You simply decide which one to live with. And I signed it, Tony Watley, hopeful, best-selling author. And so I kind of, that was my way of like calling my shot, you know? Yeah. And, and then it occurred. So I'm never, I'm never going to edit it. It's like, that's, that's what I put in there before I became that. And you know, so it can be a process just like anything else. Success, I think, is a, is a very, is very much of a process. And a lot of people just think it's like luck factor and all this. You can greatly increase your luck by just putting in the work and planning things properly. You know, one fascinating thing I've, I've come to understand is that every successful entrepreneur I've met has really brought their personal professional experience to bear in a way that makes the most sense for them. And I can tell, for, you know, just even listening to you that, you know, your engineering mindset, the ability to just 
prioritize, which for you know folks like myself, we don't have that 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 same experience, is really challenging, right? And I, you know, I'm curious, you know, for you know, when you encounter a young startup entrepreneur or older startup entrepreneur, whoever, as they're truly trying to figure out, okay, how do I move this this project forward? Like, what do I actually need to do in order to take that first step? For you, that's it, it. Seems like that's an easy thing to understand what to do, and I'm sure your your book touches upon this. But how would you advise them? You know, if we don't, for someone who doesn't have that kind of acumen, how do you guide them in that kind of process? I think first we have to evaluate the ideas for your business and have to be courageous enough to admit that the ideas that you have don't always have the capability to meet your goals. So if you have a financial goal or a time goal or a freedom goal or whatever it is that your goals are, sometimes your ideas just aren't going to get you there. They've got really low odds of getting there. And I find that a lot of times early entrepreneurs, and this is regardless of age, because I think business is the, the experience is the age, not your, your physical calendar age. And the thing is that most people hold on to their, their ideas too strongly. Maybe it's just something they love or they've been told by too many people like, follow your passions and do the things and build your dream business. And all these corny things that you hear sometimes these gurus will tell you. And sometimes that's misleading because there's no context behind that kind of conversation. And I think about what is it that you want to achieve? There's the end project, right? What is the goal? And then I just work backwards and just go, hey, does this project there, this idea that you have potentially get you there? And do you have the resources available to do that? Do you have the knowledge? If not, are you willing to go get the knowledge? Do you have the skill? If not, are you willing to go invest and get that skill? Or if you don't have the resources, do you, can you hire that resource or can you farm that out or can you learn that? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, but I think a lot of times the the people that don't start is just overwhelmed of all the tasks. If you were to look at a pile of everything that you need to do for a business, whether that's go create an LLC or an S Corp or a DBA and learn what marketing is and, and copywriting and learning graphic design and website design and landing pages and funnels and all these things. I get it. it it's a lot of stuff and it's a steaming pile of crap. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of stuff to learn. And I don't know where to start. Well, that's what my book is. It's like, okay, you don't need all this stuff. Here's where you start. And as you improve as an entrepreneur by doing the reps and getting punched in the face a few times, because you're going to, it's going to happen. And that's how entrepreneurs improve. You're going to learn these lessons. You're going to become a better entrepreneur as you go. But the most, most important thing is just starting, but making sure that you start with the idea that's got a viable chance of getting you to that goal. Because a lot of times people will waste a year or two years chasing this thing that doesn't scale. It's never like you could say, Hey, I want to have $10 million in the bank and I'm going to hand build these widgets every night when I get off my job. And, and, and I make $20 a thing and I can only make three of these a night. Like it's not like the numbers don't match up. It's not going to get you there. So you have to be realistic and strong enough to walk away from these ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a great last point as far as walking away from something that maybe isn't quite working out. And, you know, one fear I have is that there's, um, yeah, I don't know if you noticed or heard about the stat, but there's been a huge uptick in the number of people applying to uh, start start a company for the first time. You know, the number of business licenses has skyrocketed probably because of, you know, COVID-19, that pandemic, people losing jobs. How would you advise those who maybe have been thrust into entrepreneurship? Maybe it wasn't really what they had in store for their life plan, maybe there is this, you know, really big concern of just trying to now, you know, put food on the table, but it's, it's different. It's different from when, when you and I started because we want to start something, would you give them the same advice? And also even, you know, would, if you had to write something for that audience, would it be a book? Would it be, how would you, how would you connect with that audience now in this kind of post hopefully ending pandemic kind of world? I think that 
Most people that leave corporate to go start a business, they underestimate the amount of business knowledge and skills they need. A lot of times we technical knowledge, we're highly paid for something like that, especially if you're a six-figure salary earner. You either got technical knowledge or you got some kind of a, a technician level knowledge where you got a skill set that doesn't translate to being a successful business owner. The analogy I like to use is a mechanic, okay? Mm. They may be the very best mechanic in the shop. They could have the ones that have no returns on the customers and the customer's really happy with the amount of work and the craftsmanship and the quality and the detail that they put into that vehicle. But now they're looking at the boss sitting in the air conditioned office, driving his brand new F-250 thinking like, I should be a business owner. Like, why does he get to sit in the air conditioned? I could totally do his job. and. The problem is, is they undervalue the amount of business skills and knowledge you need to have. So I always think about if you're a technical person that knows something or you're a skill set person that knows how to do something, you need to be equally good in business. So whatever expertise level you think you are in those areas, you need to be equal to that in business. So mm. go hire a coach, go join a accountability group that's really focused on business, read the right books, and try not to take too much advice from too many people. I always think about who do I want to learn from? And first of all, is it a character fit? Is their integrity fit? Is their core values aligned with me? Have they achieved the things I actually want to achieve? Those are the people you should be learning from. And everybody else, you should just understand that we all have two cents. You're going to get advice from everybody you ask. And you're also going to get advice from the wrong people who have not had the experience or the expertise. And they may not have the same risk tolerance as you. So they're going to give you bad advice. It may sound like they care. Like, oh, that sounds really risky. Are you sure you want to quit your job to go do that? Well, if you're asking your mom who has only worked corporate her entire life and she's trying to mm -hmm. give you this as a protective layer, you got to understand that that context of her decision and her response is not going to align with what you need to do. So you may ask somebody else that has actually done what you do. And I go, hey, dude, it's a lot easier than you think. And like, get over these stupid objections and this negative self-talk and like, just take a step in the door and go do something. And it, you're going to see that it's a lot harder in some ways, but a lot easier in others. And it's not as bad as you think. So you got to have the experience and advice from the right people. And I think that's the best way to start. I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, for our listeners, uh, who are thinking about maybe starting something for the first time and you're looking as we we talked about who is that trusted source look for successful entrepreneurs look at you know folks like like tony who have done it before who have built things from scratch and learned you know painful lessons along the way but who who are able to give some really kind of solid advice it, it feels like this past year uh, we've seen this kind of leapfrogging into this new online kind of dimension and the way people are now absorbing and and taking in information. I, I know our producer found you on Clubhouse and wanted to talk about that. I mean, like, you know, kind of to a point of if you had to do it again and give advice out, in what form would you do it? You know, is Clubhouse the new thing? And if you want, if you can just share what Clubhouse is, but where do you think people are? How do you think is now the best way to get information to them, especially entrepreneurs and small business owners who are, you know, struggling in that landscape? There's so many options. What now do we need to do to best connect to that audience? Yeah, Clubhouse is where the energy is in this moment. It could change tomorrow. It could just disappear in the next, you never know. But I think that's where the energy is right now. And it's also evidenced by how many hours a lot of very influential people are spending there on a daily basis. I mean, I think most people are spending, like some very high level people, CEOs of major corporations, mega influencers, people are the best sellers list, like people you truly admire are spending hours there a day. That's unprecedented compared to the other social media platforms. You don't see people spending hours on Twitter. You don't see people spending hours and hours on Facebook, creating content, especially and sharing value. They're, they're maybe surfing. They may be in escapism looking for entertainment, but they're not actually sharing value in a lot of these different platforms. So 
you know, if you ask anybody that's frequenting Clubhouse, they'll tell you like, this is an addiction. We actually kind of jokingly, they call it the crack house because <laughs> it is, it's, it's like you, you're adding value, you're contributing, you're, you're hearing things, you're, it's a networking super mega like hub. I mean, finding people that you would never have conversations with that you admired and from a distance, you're sharing a stage with them in some regards, you're asking questions, you're DMing in the background on Instagram and it's a, it's an amazing platform for getting the information in real time format. I always think about it as a, as a interactive drive time radio is the best way mm. I can describe that. So it's a podcast that you can raise your hand in and go, Hey, uh, you know, what did you think about this? Or what, how did you do it? And, you know, so it's like, you can interact and that's, what's cool about it. I th- also think that it's cool because it's voice only and people mm. like me, and I have an unfair advantage because I had to create that for myself. If, if I would have had, Clubhouse in 2016, prior to doing public speaking classes and working with a coach, I would have not done very well. I would probably would have had two followers instead of 25,000 followers. And it's because it's a vocal app and you have to learn how to speak with influence and speak with kind of conviction and energy because we all have something to say. You know, anybody listening to the show, we all have a story. We all have something to say. We all have some way to contribute value. But the thing is, is if you haven't invested in your skills to go be able to convey those things in a manner that people are receptive and actually want to hear what you're saying, nobody's going to pay attention. It's just the fact of it. So that was me 2016. Like I said, I had stage fright. I didn't like being on camera. I didn't like my recorded voice. And I had to go through that journey. And I did social media videos every single day to get better. I would go to Toastmasters and I would show up every Monday and I would raise my hand like begrudgingly going, oh man, they're going to call on me. And I'd go up there and make a fool out of myself because I felt embarrassed and had all the physiological signs of fear of speaking in front of people. And mm-hmm. I just had to do the reps. And I knew right. that if I just kept doing this, I would eventually get better, just like with anything, just like weightlifting. We, we lift, we, we fail the last set, and we come back next week and we're stronger. And I just had to do the reps, and I had to be willing to do that to become the right person to carry my story. And here we are, a clubhouse rolls out in 2021, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's almost like I've been preparing for this app for the last four years. And so I, I timed it well. But honestly, you ask me, what would I do differently in the past? I would have joined a Toastmasters or got a public speaking coach when I was 18 instead of mm. in my 40s. But like most people, I was management and corporate. I managed teams, 75 to 100 people. I've managed hundreds of millions of dollars in these bigger and international projects. And I've done the kickoff meetings and I've done the thousands of slideshow presentations. And I used to lie to myself, man. I used to think like, man, I'm a, I'm a good public speaker because I have the occasional courage to stand in front of people and talk about the slideshow presentation or the president or talk about a safety stand down or talk about the accolades of the company. And I lied to myself because I'd never been formally trained in public speaking, but I thought that I had the courage to occasionally speak. So therefore I was okay at public speaking and I didn't need training. You know, I got this, I'm good enough. And and so we get those people, you know, in, in the Toastmasters group. And, you know, for those who don't know what that is, that's a nonprofit company and it's, it's really inexpensive. It's like $90 for an entire year, like the cheapest personal development that'll change your life. The thing is that we get these people that are executive C-suite people that join that club and they're like, well, I don't know why I'm here. And I'm an executive of this big company and my, my board of directors suggested I'm here. So I'm just here because they told me to be here. And guys, within two meetings, those people are humbled they're mm-hmm. humble. They're just like me. They're like, holy crap, I am not nearly as good as I, this as I thought I was. Because when you actually start to get trained and learn actual tactics to speak with influence and inflection and enunciation and eye contact and gestures and mannerisms and facial features and all these things, you realize like, I didn't know any of this even existed. Like, what is right. this stuff? Like, oh my gosh. So 
you got to realize that most people that join a Toastmasters or any kind of public speaking thing, they have no intention to stand on a stage. They're looking for confidence to be interviewed like you are doing right now for me or being on a podcast or even speaking to one person. Because if you could speak influential to one person, it's not any different than the skill set for speaking to thousands of people. So if you got a story and you want people to pay attention because you want them to have the takeaways to get the results so you can actually enjoy the results with them, you got you to gotta invest in these skills. I think you're absolutely right, and, I, and I, I'm so glad you talk about that. the The importance of that skill set, you know, I, I I learned in the similar kind of way, you know, through through practice, and then when I was with the governor's office, we got some media training. But for a lot of people, they never really have that opportunity, so they need to take it upon themselves to find it. And I think now what you're seeing, especially with tools like you know platforms like TikTok, now going to e-commerce, LinkedIn, adding all kinds of new content creation tools, or even Clubhouse, where you do have the opportunity to kind of raise your profile, but you need to get real comfortable now in speaking out loud, you know, not just saying things, but saying things with meaning and intent. And it's going to be so important for people to learn how to build that competency, right? I mean, the only thing that's is going to be, uh, I guess, to our advantage is that it's a whole lot easier to find those, you know, before it's like you had to find your local kind of chapter. Now there's all kinds of online, you know, webinars and things they can take. But I think you're so right, man. That's something that they don't really teach. I mean, yeah, I don't remember getting that kind of practice when I was in grade school or high school. I wish they had. I wish it had been a core class. Selling, you know, even that alone would have been really important. I, I know we're, we're getting close on, on time here, Tony. So I have a, a few more questions. One, yeah, I definitely want to know, since you are definitely a car guy, what are you driving, man? Like, what's <laughs> what, what kind of cars uh, are, are you a fan of? I'm a fan of American performance cars and that can be new or old. So I like Dodge Vipers. I've got a couple of those and I like classic muscle cars. I've got 1969 Camaro SS that I've built and it's been on the cover of magazines and I've got a couple of other Camaros and yeah, I've got a Jeep Gladiator Mojave that I drive around as a lift and got big tires on it. I just like American cars. That's, that's my primary. I don't dislike foreign cars, but I just like American performance cars. That's kind of the way I was raised and that's the things I enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you, man. My parent, my mom, uh, she told me her first car was a 65 Mustang, you, you know, and the way she describes it, it always makes me feel extreme envy because the first car they handed down to me was at the family Volvo, which is not, not quite <laughs> it the was same. Safe. You know? It was safe, yeah. Jesse. The yeah, Volvos was, are safe. Yeah, I was extremely safe, except the way we, we handled that with me and my, my friends there living in San Fernando Valley. I don't know. I don't know if we drove that car into the ground. The other question I have for you is that, you know, since you do provide so much great advice to, to entrepreneurs, what is your business hack, man? You know, what if you could give one piece of advice, what would that be to someone just starting out? Man, I would say not to just start out. This is going to be to a specific segment of the people that want to start out. I think that it's very important to develop your leadership skills and build a movement or build a community. And there's a difference between building a community and building followers. Now I get we're hanging out on Instagram and Clubhouse and, and all these things. We're all focused on followers. And I'm going to tell you the distinct difference between followers and a community. Okay. This is how I was able to build a 300,000 member community and build a 280,000 member community, like on the back end of that with the same business model. You got to be embedded as a humble servant. You got to be focused on contributing value to the audience. You got to be really trying to facilitate conversations and bonds between the individual members of the community. So a followership, you got to think about it as like a pedestal type scenario where you're standing above the audience and you're speaking down to them on the stage. And it's a one way conversation other than the chit chat that maybe shows up in the feed of the responses, you know, the engage. So don't think about building a followership 
build the community where I want everybody in my community to become best friends with each other. So I want to create the lines of communication, not be, not from me to them. Like this is me and I'm super awesome. And this is my message and you guys are here for me. And that's followers. I want those people in the group to become best friends, lifelong friends, maybe even marriage partners. And they're going to always going to remember where they met. They're always going to come back and hang out. You got to think about this like as a local bar, right? People go back to their local bar because they recognize people and they have conversations and they can't wait to go hang out with their friends. That's what a community is, okay? Mm-hmm. And so it was always my job to get people off of the keyboards to assemble. And that's what I did by racing events and car shows around the country. We did them in LA. We did them in Detroit and Florida and you know, Michigan and Houston and just wherever the hotbeds are for the communities. We would go do these events back then and draw people from four to six hours away in that radius to come hang out and get off the keyboards, get to know each other outside of screen names. They would leave those racing events after racing each other for the weekend and actually be best friends. And that was 20 years ago. And these people are still best friends. And that's the kind of thing I've built. And and with now with 365 Driven, my entrepreneurship community, I'm using the same core values, the same leadership style. I like to pride myself on being accessible to my, my group. I don't like to join these groups where like, well, I'm super awesome and I'm an influencer and you never get to talk to me, but I might stop in once a week and just say hello. Like, how super lame is that? Like, you're not a community leader. You're still thinking follower business model because you got thousands and thousands of followers and you're super important. Like, that's never going to be me. I don't care how much money I make. I'm always going to build a community and I'm always going to be interactive in that. And that's a key because when you build that community, you build leverage behind you. So no longer are the things that you want to achieve on your own. It's you and your hundreds of thousands of people in your community that you're representing. So, and people I see that I was writing for magazines and I had all the VIP credentials with the media, with all the automotive publishers. And I got to do unveils with General Motors and had Cadillac as a client and all these different things because it wasn't Tony Watley. It was Tony Watley and his 300,000 people community that mm. they wanted access to. And I was the gatekeeper to that. And so I built a massive amount of leverage by doing so. And that was the things that you can build your personal brand around and do offerings and build companies that are verticals within your company. And, you know, I, I built an online retail company with selling wheels inside that, that community. And I, I built web pages so that outside vendors could have a web page so they could advertise on my community. So I was, they were paying me to build a website so they could pay me to advertise on my website. So I was building these verticals within the verticals and making all this advertising revenue. So you have to be really creative and understand what your, your client and your customer base needs and just fulfill those needs. And, there's so many things that you can go into. We can have this long conversation. This would be a day long conversation, but I, I really think that the superpower for me is building these communities. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can tell, you know, and I love that, you know, it's not about building followers. It's about building that community, right? What is the best way for folks to get connected to 365 driven? You know, what's the best way to follow you and keep up to date on your project? At my website, keep it real simple. One place, 365driven.com. And you'll find my book side hustle millionaire. You'll find me on Instagram, clubhouse, Facebook, LinkedIn, all there and then information. Awesome, Matt. It's, it's been so great to have you on, on the show. You know, I wish you the best. Thank you for sharing all your great advice on community building and startups and growing a business. You know, I wish you the best, Tony, and, and safety and health to your family in Houston. But thanks again for coming on. Hey, Jesse, thanks for having me on. It's been an honor and a privilege, and I look forward to hearing from your listeners. Awesome. Thanks very much. If you need help and want to be a part of our community and find resources to grow your business, join us at our website at smallbusinessfront.com. We'd love to see you there. Have a great day and we'll catch you next time on Hack My Business.